Good morning, everyone. Welcome. You can find your seats. And uh, as you're sitting down, turn to 2 Kings. We're starting 2 Kings. Luke finished up last week, 1 Kings, and uh, last couple of weeks. We're still in our series, uh, In the Lord's Sight. Again, I, old hat for those of you who have been here, but it's the idea that throughout 1 Kings, 2 Kings, and 2 Chronicles, you see the phrase, in the Lord's sight or in the Lord's eyes, because he's watching his people, he's watching the leaders of his people, he's watching and he's seeing all this happen, and he's actually, he's watching happen what he warned them would happen, right? They're not supposed to have a king, they're not supposed to have a temple, like there's all these things that they went ahead and did and God allowed them to do, but he warned them, he's like, if you do this, this is how it's going to be, and they're like, oh yeah, yeah, we want to do that, yeah, we're going to do that, and then he's like, See, I told you this is how it's going to be. And we find ourselves in the story looking over and over again where the Lord says this king was either evil or did what was wrong in the Lord's sight. This king did what was right in the Lord's sight. This prophet was, said what was right in the Lord's sight. These prophets didn't. And God is basically telling his people, look, I'm watching. I know what's going on. You may not think I do. You may not think I see, but I'm watching every bit of this. And I'm even sending people to you. I'm sending evil kings, righteous kings. I'm sending good prophets. I'm allowing bad prophets so that you will finally quit looking in your own sight for everything and look to me. And that's pretty much sums up the four, over 400 year history, 400 years of this period of the kings, going from the first king Saul and then God's king that he raised up in David all the way until the final kingdom, the southern kingdom falls to Babylon um, much later. Here's kind of the history of where we're at. There's two tribes. There's the southern kingdom of Judah. That's the tribe that every once in a while had a righteous king. And then there's the northern kingdom, which... In their entire kingdom of 200 and some years, they never once had a righteous king. Never once did they have a king that God said, he did what was right in my own eyes because they wouldn't give up the things they held on to. The system of worship, the systems they had in their culture of how they did money, all of it. They wouldn't give it up. And so God's like, here, here's another wicked king and another wicked king. We see that in the, in the northern kingdom, they created two different places of worship. God said his place of worship would always be Jerusalem. Someday Jesus is going to come back with a new Jerusalem. So God said, look, Jerusalem is the place where I want my name to dwell. In the northern kingdom, they made two other places, Bethel and Dan. They made two other temples, and they made golden calves and sacrificed to those golden calves. They participated in all kinds of idol worship, Two of the most being Baal and Asherah. And Baal and Asherah would mate with one another and bring crops and all these good things. So you can imagine the sexual nature of the northern kingdom and how they had gone off a cliff in terms of their sexuality. And then we see prophets that were sent to the northern kingdom. You've got Micaiah, Elijah, Elisha during this period we're looking at in the southern kingdom, the same three prophets, King Jehoshaphat, Jehoram comes along, Ahaziah, and then in the southern kingdom you have Queen Jezebel and another Ahaziah and Joram, okay? Those are not, these names are similar, so be careful not to get confused. There's two Ahaziah kings, there's 
a northern king and there's a southern one. And there's a Jehoram and there's a Joram, okay? This can be very confusing if you don't like take a little bit of time to recognize these are similar names, right? Just like you got Pete and Peter. You know, you've got similar names in our culture that are that way. Rebecca and Becca, you know, you've got all these names that are there. Luke and Logan, right? Very similar kind of, well, they're L's, they, no, they're not similar. Okay, so those are some of the ones. Here's the map of the northern southern kingdom. Northern kingdom, they have that territory. They're fighting with all these people around them. You see where Moab is? That's going to be really important in the next couple of weeks. And Edom, these are nations, Amnon, that begin to rebel against God's people. This morning, what I want us to look at first, I want us to look at a couple of passages. You know, we live in times that can seem really hard, and we wonder why good people die. We wonder why righteous people suffer. God says this in Psalm 116.15. He says, the death of his faithful ones is valuable in the Lord's sight. The psalmist goes on to say, Lord, I am indeed your servant. I am your servant, the son of your female servant. You have loosened my bonds. I will offer you a sacrifice of thanksgiving and call on the name of Yahweh. In other words, I'm not going to call on Baal. I'm not going to call on Asherah. I'm going to actually use the name you gave us, and I'm going to call on you with that name to distinguish me from all the other G-O-D gods. And then he says, I will fulfill my vows to the Lord in the presence of all his people, in the courts of the Lord's house, within you, Jerusalem. Hallelujah. See, this is a person who understands that death is a reality for all of us. The question is, how will we live and how will we die? You're alive. You're going to have to live today. <laughs> right? You're going to die. You don't get a choice when that day comes. You, get some, you can do some control. I mean, you can treat yourself really badly and drive 1,000, you know, 100 mile an hour all the time, and you'll probably get sooner to death. But, but literally, we're faced with life and death choices every day. The choice between life and death, decision over decision. And the psalmist writes this psalm, and by the way, I want you to go back and read through that psalm, because that psalm is actually a messianic psalm. It's about Jesus. All of the Old Testament leaders, the Levites, the priests, recognized that this was a psalm about the Messiah. That this is talking about Jesus, who Jesus says, hey, the death of me, the most faithful one, is so valuable in the Lord's sight and valuable to all of you. The Lord, indeed, I am your servant. So Jesus is God himself, but in human form, he's like, I'm a servant. I, I, I serve the Godhead, Father, Son, Spirit. They work together. He says, I am your servant, the son of your female servant. Mary, who served the Lord faithfully. And he said, you've loosened my bonds. Jesus was bound. He took the sin for us and then he paid the price and then we were loose, so to speak. We were taken away from the consequences and the bond of sin because of him. And he says, I will offer you a sacrifice of thanksgiving and call on the name of Yahweh. And he did exactly that on the cross. 
And then he goes on to say, I'll fulfill my vows in the presence of all his people, which Jesus fulfilled the ultimate vow at the beginning of creation, agreeing to die for these people, Adam and Eve, who chose to sin. Jesus went all the way to the cross to fulfill the vow that he would be the Messiah that would come and save us and to fulfill the vow that someday he would come again for all of his people. It's a beautiful picture of Jesus understanding what the reality of life was about to be a servant, to be God's servant, and the reality of death, that it's valuable that we die. You know, in the New Testament, Paul says it this way. My eager expectation and hope. So stop for a minute. Paul says, my eager expectation. What, what do you have an eager expectation about in your life? Like life's coming at you and you're thinking about getting married. You're thinking about having a child. You're thinking about buying a car. You're thinking about changing jobs. You're thinking about moving. You're thinking all these expectations that we place, graduating and, you know, all these expectations. And Paul says, yeah, I got, I got some really eager expectations. And then Paul says, I have some really incredible hopes. Not a hope for a new job or a wife. No, no. I've got this incredible eager is that I will not be ashamed about anything, but that now, as always, with all boldness, Christ will be highly honored in my body, whether by life or by death. For me, Paul says, living is Christ. Living is him. And dying, oh, that's valuable. That's, that's gain. I'm going to be with him, and I'm done. But he said, it's so valuable for me to live this life. For all of you, Paul says, in other parts of his writings to the church. So I don't know where you are this morning. I don't know how you think about life or death coming at you recently. I don't know if you struggle with depression or you struggle with sadness or you struggle with just living and doing life and being responsible. But I can tell you that God's people always have. And Jesus came and he gave us the Holy Spirit so that we could respond like he and Paul responded. And so as we pick up the story this morning about life and death, recognize every day we are choosing life and death. Every day you make choices and I make choices based on our view of what life really is and what we think is worth dying for every day. Most of you probably don't really fully enjoy going to work every day. It would be much more enjoyable for you to go to the beach, you know, stay home and get a project done, work on something you enjoy doing, but you go to work, why? Because you recognize that there is a value to work of placing yourself in the hands of others to laying down your life so that you receive the resources by which you can give others life, namely your family. Like this process of life hasn't stopped. It's been the same all the way through. So let's pick up our story. 1 Kings twenty-two, fifty-one. At the end of 1 Kings, Ahaziah, son of Ahab, became king over Israel and Samaria in the 17th year of Judah's king Jehoshaphat and reigned over Israel for only two years. He did what was evil in the Lord's sight. There's that phrase. He walked in the way of his father, in the way of his mother, that's Ahab and Jezebel, two very wicked people, and in the way of Jeroboam, son of Nebat, who caused Israel to sin. He served Baal and worshipped him. He provoked the Lord God of Israel just as his father had done. 
So Ahaziah comes to the throne. He's from Ahab and Jezebel. And it even says, the issue, look at this, the issue of life that Ahaziah will not deal with is he won't go back to the reality of what Jeroboam did when he said, I'm not going to worship God the way he asked to be worshipped. I'm going to create my own way. And every time you see this, every time when God says this king was wicked in the northern kingdom, almost every single time, he says he continued in the ways of Jeroboam of Nebat. God goes all the way back and says, you keep trying to fix all these problems. You keep trying to clean things up. We'll see in a minute that this happens. You keep trying to do all these things, but you won't go to the root. The root is you have two places of worship in Bethel and Dan with two golden calves and you've allowed all this idolatry and so you just keep slapping God on top of it instead of just getting it done with in your life, getting it out. I'm done with it. I'm not going to do this. I'm going to go back and yeah, I'm not going to be very well liked because you have to remember, for any of the northern kings, okay, to undo the religious system and to undo the government system that had been established under Jeroboam would mean literally blowing up the whole culture because the entire tax base of the culture is based on giving your offerings to these gods and the kings and the priests get a cut. There's no money for the military. There's no money for anything if you start tearing down the temples and the idolatry places. It's like the tax collectors of Jesus' day that built the fake temple for Herod and God's people. It's the same system that you see over and over again that God's people repeat and that we still repeat today. We want to slap God on our plans. We want to slap God on our idolatry instead of saying, I just want to be done with this. I want to admit it. I want to die to it. And I want to live to him. And again, Ahaziah can't die to the reality that I am in a wicked culture. I became king through wicked people and I am going to repent and I'm going to say, God, I am worthy of death, but I want your life and I am willing to risk my life to bring life to my people and tell them to go back to Jerusalem and worship. Even if it means I lose all my wealth and everything because I'm your servant. They're not here to serve me as king. I'm here to serve you as king and call them to serve as you as their king. Ahaziah won't do that, just like all the others. He's choosing life for himself, right? He's choosing, I want to have the good life. I want to be the king. I, I want to keep the things I have instead of just surrendering. We go on in the story. First king says, after the death of Ahab, Moab rebelled against Israel. Remember, we saw Moab down there on that southern part, but it also went up around the northern. Moab had a treaty, um, with Israel, if you remember, the Moabites were Lot's daughters who slept, got their dad drunk and slept with him. What a messed up family the Moabites come from. Do you think you have a messed up family? All these messed up families in the Bible, right? And so these Moabites had a treaty, and now they're breaking that. They're going back on their word. And there's always been this problem between Israel and the Moabites all the way through Scripture. And there's a history I'm not going to go into. But they decide, we're going to break the treaty. It says... Ahaziah had fallen through, or yeah, fallen through the latticed window of his upper room in Samaria and was injured. Matt was driving down the highway and a deer ran out in front of him. And there are these random events 
that radically transform our life that God uses to try to get our attention. And we can either allow God to have our attention and surrender, or we can start blaming, we can start questioning, we can start, and this is one of those circuits. He's literally sitting upstairs, leaning on a piece of lattice, and falls out the window. Like the king of the entire nation. Like, I mean, you got to be like, ooh, that, why did that happen? Like, bat, don't lean on lattice, right? Like, don't, by faith, and he's out the window. Now, this happened to Paul, too. Paul preached too long. I get my, you know, preaching from Paul. Paul preached too long. A guy fell out the window and died, and Paul resurrected him and continued his sermon, by the way. He didn't stop. That was one of the most amazing, anyway. Like, that happened in the New Testament. So I guess this is a common problem. We don't look where we lean. We don't test things. We just kind of, whoop, and I'm out the, we all do that. This happens to him, and it's almost like comical. Like, here's this guy who's ascended to the throne, and he, he's this new king, and oh, and Jezebel, his mother, is still alive at this point, and he's going to be the next guy, and he just falls out a window. That can happen to you today. You, something could happen to you that could interrupt your life, and you know what? We have these kind of interruptions all the time. So what's his response? Let's look. So he sent messengers instructing them, go inquire of Baalzebub, the god of Ekron, if I will recover from this injury. But the angel of the Lord said to Elijah the Tishbite, that's the prophet of the day, we've read about Elijah numerous times over the last several chapters, go and meet the messengers of the king of Samaria and ask them, is it because there is no god in Israel that you're going to inquire of Baalzebub, the god of Ekron? Therefore, this is what the Lord says. You are not going to get up from your sickbed. You will certainly die. Then Elijah left. What an encourager. What, what an encouraging guy. Hey, I just want to send a little message for the king. He's dead. Like, he doesn't even say if he repents, he won't die. He's like, nope. And he challenges, he's like, why, why is it that you keep running to something other to God every time you have a problem? It doesn't mean we don't run to other things at times, definitely not idolatry or run to the doctor, but it's like the first thing you do is call 911, right? No, pray. The first thing you should do is Pray. Because if the ambulance gets stuck in traffic, 911 is not helpful. Pray first and call 911. Probably at the same time. Pray with the 911 operator. I don't know. But here is this situation. And you know who Baalzebub was? It's the god of flies. It's where we get Lord of the Flies from. Because they believed that the flies would come because flies were attracted to wounds And even there was a treatment in the day where they would put maggots in wounds to get rid of the infection. That was one of the ways they would deal with infection is to put maggots in there. And so that's how they would heal things. So if you're going to go to the guy who seems to be in control of the air and bring the flies who supposedly bring healing, you're going to pursue the God that's going to give you what you want. And you want to be healed. You don't want to be injured. So you're going to pursue the healing God. Not Baal, not Asherah. They're not healing gods. They're fertility guys. is not looking to have a kid. He's not looking to procreate right now. He's looking to be well. So I'm going to grab this idol. I'm going to grab this thing. Do you recognize that this is exactly how people treat 
our God. I'm going to use him for this. I'm going to use him for that. I don't want the whole being of Yahweh. I don't want Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. I just want Son. I just want this. I just want that. God's like, it doesn't work that way. You surrender your life. And if you don't want to surrender your life, I'm just going to remind you, you have to. And that's what Elijah does. Like, you, you could have sought Yahweh. Isaiah, you come to the throne, you fall out the window, God has gotten your attention, and the first thing you do is you run back to your idolatry instead of running to Yahweh. Instead of running to him and saying, man, maybe I fell out the window because this is a mess. My father hasn't listened. Nobody's listening. Terrible things happened. My dad, the blood got licked up and that was a prophecy and I saw that happen. I heard about that happening. I mean, how much more does God have to do to say hello to his people? And Isaiah won't listen. You see, Beelzebub and the God that we want, all the idols, the reason we create these idols is because we really don't want the God who is, who is an actual control of our life and our death. We want the God that works for us. Whatever God works, whatever church works, whatever marriage works, whatever kids work, whatever works, I want that. And I'm going to keep chasing it till I find what works. And God says, I work. I actually continue to work on your behalf. You just don't see it. And I've got an eternity where if you know me, you, you're promised forever that your works will be used by me. You can trust me. But I'm asking you to lay down your life to be a servant. And Hezekiah doesn't want to be a servant. The king then asked, what sort of man came up to meet you and spoke those words to you, right? They didn't know it was Elijah the Tishbite. They replied, a hairy man with a leather belt around his waist. <laughs> like, yeah, he was a goofy-looking guy, man. He's all hairy, had a belt. Like, I mean, I saw some of those guys at the beach this week. You know what I mean? You're like, whoa, that's a lot. That's, that's a whole lot. I'm not trying to judge, but wow, right? I can be that guy. Anyway, a hairy man with a leather belt, he said, it's Elijah the Tishbite. He knows immediately, Ahaziah knows that this guy is a righteous guy. He knows that this guy is going to stand up for Yahweh. And so immediately he doesn't say, are you sure? Did he have this? He's like, oh, nope, that's Elijah. He, he, he won't give me what I want. Elijah won't give me what I want. Every time I ask him for what he wants, he won't give me what I want. So yep, that's Elijah, all right. Then he goes on, he says, so King Ahaziah sent a captain of 50 with his 50 men to Elijah. When the captain went up to meet him, in other words, this is some of the best of Ahaziah's men he's sending. One of his captains, he says, sitting, he saw Elijah sitting on a hill. He announced, man of God, the king declares, come down. I love this. You've got a military guy that says, hey, you man of God, you come down here. In other words, you're not in control. Our king's in control of your life. You get off your hill and go do what our king tells you to do. Elijah responded to the captain of the 50. If I am a man of God, as you say, because obviously this guy didn't believe it. Because he didn't approach him as you would approach a man of God. This is not how you approach a man of God. Anytime you see people approach men of God in Scripture, it's not like this. You'll see it in a second. He goes down and he says, Elijah responded, May fire come down from heaven and consume you and your 50 man, men if I'm a man of God. Then fire came down from heaven and consumed them and his 50 men. Word gets back, we see, and I'm going to skip a verse. Word gets back. Ahaziah's like, well, fine, I'll do it again. Is this not what we do with our idolatry in our life and death situation? 
oh, I can do it better this time. Like this time it'll work. This time, you know, I just need to make a better sacrifice. I need to be more repentant. I need to walk the aisle faster and fall on my face quicker at the altar and I'll be saved. I need to get baptized way under the water and held there for a few minutes and then I'm really baptized. He goes on and he says, 50 more men came. He sent another 50 with his 50 men to Elijah. What do you think happened to those 50 men? They all got burned up by fire again. They approached Elijah the same way. Hey, man of God, get down here. He's like, if I'm really a man of God, fire from heaven is going to come down and they're gone. Now watch this. Then the king sent a third. My goodness gracious, is this not us? How many times? You've been prophesied you're going to die. A hundred of your men have been literally gone by fire. You would think that's the moment if you care about God, you care about your own life, and you care about your men's life, that you would go, we need to just stop and repent right now before anything else bad happens. Then the king sent a third captain of 50 with his men. The third captain of 50 went up and fell on his knees in front of Elijah. And begged him, man of God, please let my life, look at this, and the lives of these 50 servants of yours, not Ahaziah, be precious in your sight. Remember how God said precious or valuable in the sight of those that die? who are faithful. We just read that. This guy falls and he's like, look, I don't want my men to die. We're obeying a king because we have to. We've come to you, but I'm approaching you differently. I am saying, I know you can call fire down and burn up Ahaziah and then I'm not under his orders anymore. So I don't know what to do. I'm just trying to be a faithful servant here of a wicked king and a really righteous prophet and I'm caught. So what I'm gonna do is come before the righteous prophet and just say, ah, help Help me and my men. Already fire has come down from heaven and consumed the first two captains of 50 with their 50s, but this time let my life be precious in your sight. He says it again. He says, I know that there is a God who sees life as valuable and precious. And so I'm coming to you and I'm saying, please, I... I recognize who you are and I recognize my life is nothing, but I'm just asking that you would, you would give me a moment. You'd give me life when I don't deserve it. I deserve to perish like the other guys. The angel of the Lord said to Elijah, look at this, the angel of the Lord. Remember, whenever you see that phrase, the angel of the Lord, that means the messenger of Yahweh. Oftentimes, whenever you see the phrase, the angel of the Lord, it's talking about Jesus because he is the word in the flesh And he is also the theophany. In other words, he is God in flesh. So whenever there was a theophany, God appearing to humanity in the Old Testament, it was Jesus. And anytime the angel of the Lord speaks, and it's not like Gabriel, and God doesn't say this was the angel Gabriel, it's most likely Jesus speaking directly to Elijah. And he says, the angel of the Lord said to Elijah, go down with him. Don't be afraid of him. So he got up and went down with him to the king. That is some serious boldness. That is some serious no fear. 
This king wants you dead, right? Like, but this guy's humble response to come and say, we're nothing if you don't make us something. You're the one in charge. Like, this guy's humble response, the Lord responds to the humility. Do you see it? The Lord sees this humble man. He sees his humility falling down and saying, I'm worthy of nothing. And God doesn't say, yeah, that's right. He's like, thank you. And Elijah's like, okay, I'll follow you. The Lord told me I should follow you. I'll go with you. And he goes to Ahaziah. He's not afraid. See, this is one of our problems. What are you afraid of? Because typically our fears will expose exactly what we believe about life and death. They will. They'll show us what, we, what we're afraid of. They'll show us what, what we're willing to not die for or die for. Some of you are scared of spiders. You will not die from a spider because I've seen you. You like take off. Like you're, you're 20 feet away. Like that spider is not going to get me, right? Some of the rest of you, you like spiders. You'll play with them. You'll get bit. And you'll die probably, and then we'll all mourn you and thank God that you're in heaven. Right? There's healthy fear, there's unhealthy fear. Elijah says, I don't have to be afraid. I can trust my God. And if God wants me to go see this wicked king after I told him he's going to die and I've killed a hundred of his men, then I'm just going to believe God can protect me. He goes down. Jesus said it this way to his followers. He said, therefore, don't be afraid of them since There is nothing covered that won't be uncovered and nothing hidden that won't be made known. What I tell you in the dark, speak in the light. What you hear in a whisper, proclaim on the housetops. Don't fear those who can kill the body but are not able to kill the soul. Rather, fear him who is able to destroy both soul and body in hell. That's what this captain knew. He understood this without Jesus saying it. And then it goes on, aren't two sparrows sold for a penny? Yet not one of them falls to the ground without your father's consent. God is in control of life and death, period. It is not out of his purview. And we may not understand why he allows to happen and not allow to happen. It doesn't matter. You cannot believe in God. You know what? It doesn't change the fact that you still don't understand why life happens and doesn't happen. It doesn't change it. It just makes it really miserable. He goes on and he says, but even the hairs of your head have all been counted as they've gone down the drain. So don't be afraid, therefore, like me, there, don't be afraid, therefore, you are worth more than many sparrows. Do you believe you're worth more than a sparrow? Because that's some that's probably part of our problem. We don't believe what God says about our life, that it is valuable to him, that he loves us, that he created us, that if you're not dead, it's a miracle that you're not dead, that that he is sustaining you, that there's something he has for you, there's something he wants you to do in the world as a servant. If you're alive, if you've got breath, and sometimes your purpose is just to get in the way of other people so they have to serve you to become, learn how to become a servant. Like, that's the mess of our world, and it's beautiful. And Christ modeled that when he came. Do you believe that God cares that much about you? Because if you don't, man, I feel bad for you. God cares. You are that valuable. He preserves your life, and he's going to take you someday because you're that valuable. Death is not a punishment, Paul says. It is a value. I am going to get out of here. 
praise the Lord. It's valuable. The world looks at death and mourns, as Paul says, with no hope. We, and Peter says this as well, we mourn with the hope. Jesus lays out the same exact thing. First Kings goes on, Ahaziah died according to the word of the Lord that Elijah had spoken. Since he had no son, Joram became king in his place. This happened in the second year of Judah, King Joram's son of Jehoshaphat. The rest of the events of Ahaziah's reign, along with his accomplishments, are written in the historical record of Israel's kings. In chapter 3, we pick back up the story of Joram. Joram, son of Abraham, became, Abraham became or Ahab, sorry, became king over Israel and Samaria during the 18th year of Judah king Jehoshaphat's reign and reigned 12 years. He did what was evil in the Lord's sight, look at this, but not like his father and mother, for he removed the sacred pillar of Baal his father had made. Because Joram is not Ahaziah's son. Joram is the second son of Ahab and Jezebel. Ahaziah died without having anyone to take over the throne, so Joram steps up. And Joram is like, I saw what happened to Ahaziah when he didn't recognize God at all. I'm at least going to take down a bail pole or two, see if God will be happy with me, like just leave me alone. You know what I mean? I just, we good, right? Like I took down a bail pole here, a bail pole there, everywhere, a bail pole, kind of just got rid of some. Look what it says. Nevertheless, Joram clung to the sins that Jeroboam, son of Nebat, had caused Israel to commit. He did not turn away from them. He was evil. He wouldn't turn away. He couldn't let go. He just had to cling to those things. He wouldn't just say, I need a whole new system of life. I'm going to have to blow this thing up. He's like, nope, can't do it. By the way, his mother Jezebel was still alive at this point. That would have been really hard to do because Jezebel probably would have had his head and just put another son in charge had he stood up to mom. I mean, this is so awful when you look at this, that each king has a chance to change his life and change the life of his people, and every time he chooses more death. More death. More death. We go on the story. It says, The time had come for the Lord to take Elijah up to heaven in a whirlwind. Elijah and Elisha were traveling from Gilgal, and Elijah said to Elisha, Hey, Stay here, the Lord is sending me on to Bethel. But Elisha replied, as the Lord lives and as you yourself live. I love that statement. He says it actually three times. I underlined it all three times in the passage we're going to look at. He says, as the Lord lives and as I'm looking at you and you still live. Like, I recognize God is still alive and you're still alive, so he's not done with you yet. And so I want to keep following you till he's done with you goes on and it says, I will not leave you. So they went down to Bethel. The two sons of the prophets who were at Bethel came out to Elisha and said, hey, do you know that the Lord will take your master away from you today? What encouragement. Like, <laughs> do you know? Everybody knows Elijah's going to die today. Woohoo! Aren't we excited? Elisha's like, look, he's, yes, I know. Be quiet. That is not encouraging. Like, I know, yeah, I know what's getting ready to happen. Elijah said to him, Elisha, stay here. The Lord is sending me now to Jericho. Again, these are long travels. Bethel to Jericho. Like, he's traveling. He's like, Elijah, you don't need to, you don't need to go through this. You, you can just take it easy. What? Elisha's like, no, I am following you. Where you go, I will go. 
Your God will be my God. I'm, I'm, I'm not leaving your side. Elijah's probably depressed at this point. He knows that like the end of his life is coming and he's just like, Elisha, I don't want you to see this. I don't want you to have to deal with this. Just put me in a home and get rid of me. You know what? No, and Elijah's like, no, I'm going to be there for you. But Elisha said, as the Lord lives and you yourself live, I will not leave you. So they went to Jericho. Then the sons of the prophets who were in Jericho came up to Elijah and said, do you know that the Lord will take your master away from you today? He said, yes, I know. Be quiet. Like, I'm, I'm struggling here. <laughs> like, I know death is coming. Elijah said to him, hey, stay here. The Lord is sending me now to the Jordan. But Elisha said, as the Lord lives and as you live, I will not leave you. So the two of them went on together. It's interesting because God says this about relationships because it reflects who he is. In Hebrews 13.4, Paul is writing, he's finishing his letter to the Hebrews. These are Israelites, right? They're Hebrews. And he says, marriage must be respected by all and the marriage bed kept undefiled because God will judge immoral people and adulterers. He will. The question is, is Jesus going to take that judgment or are you going to take it? You can be forgiven. You can be made right. But are you going to allow Jesus to take it and you're going to allow him to, to lead you to repent and, and let go of the unforgiveness and speak the truth in love and like do what needs to be done biblically or are you going to do it your way? And Paul says you've got to go before and you have to understand that there, God looks at relationships when they abandon one another and he is not happy with it. He was not happy with Ahaziah or Joram or any of them abandoning him. Because it shows what? When I abandon someone, it says, I'm not doing life with you anymore. Right? It's a declaration. And there's a time sometimes where you have to die because I've got to lay down my life because of the mess that I've made. I can't tell them what to do. I just have to live my life and die to myself and serve God and his people and hope that God will bring restoration somehow because I can't restore it. It is super messy, and Paul lays this out. Look at this. He said, but your life should also be free from the love of money. He recognizes that most relationship problems almost always come back down to money. We've known this forever. <laughs> He's like, when one spouse is really taken care of well and the other one's really taken care of and they have separate bank accounts, it's really easy to leave. Yeah, it was a good run. See ya, see ya. But when your life is intertwined, it makes it harder and it hurts worse. He says, be satisfied with what you have for he himself has said. The reason you need to find satisfaction in this life and satisfaction in knowing that death is coming but you don't need to be afraid is this. I will never leave you or forsake you. He himself has said, I will never leave you or forsake you. God says, I will never leave you or forsake you. I will never. It doesn't say if, if, when, that. No, I won't do it. If you are my child, if you've surrendered, if I have adopted you into my family and you're not playing games with me, you fully, like the, the soldier with Elijah, you're out, like I'm done. God says, I will not abandon you. Now, I may put you through a lot. I may take your life, but that's not because I abandoned you. It's because I love you. Because you're abandoning me, and I'm going to keep coming after you. And then it goes on, and it says, The Lord is my helper. 
Therefore, if we truly believe that God will never leave us, then we say, the Lord is my helper. I will not be afraid. What can man do to me? Remember your leaders who have spoken God's word to you as you carefully observe the outcome of their lives. Imitate them. That's what Elisha was doing with Elijah. He's looking at the outcome of Elijah's life and he's like, I want that. I want to, I want to see how this goes down all the way to the end. I don't want to go anywhere. I want to watch it. I, I don't want to miss it, right? And then it says, Jesus Christ is the same yesterday, today, and forever. The same stuff we read about in the Old Testament, the same problems they're having with life and death, with repentance, with relationships, they're the same problems we keep having today. They haven't changed. We're still dying of the same stuff we died from a long time ago. A virus. Wow, I wish those, that's new. Never had those before. Like it's the same stuff over and over and God says, yeah, and just like the world is full of the same stuff, I am the same being. I haven't changed. I was gonna send a Messiah in the Old Testament. Everyone looked forward to the Messiah to save them because they couldn't save themselves. Then the Messiah came and everyone looked at the Messiah to save them because they couldn't save themselves. And now all of human history looks back to the Messiah because we can't save ourselves and everyone in the Bible looks forward to the day when the Messiah comes back to finally save us all. It's just, it hasn't changed. It's the same story. The question is, Will we believe it? Or like Ahaziah, we'll pursue other things. We'll kind of play games with God like Jehoram did. Right? I'll just do a few things for God. I'm not fully going to go all in. He goes on in 2 Kings. It says, 50 men from the sons of the prophet came, stood facing them from a distance, while the two of them stood by the Jordan. So now they're at the Jordan River. This is following the path of the children of Israel. Now they're standing at the Jordan and they got to cross this giant river and they're like, how are we going to cross this thing? This sounds like a familiar story in the Bible of Joshua with the Jordan and it splits and the priests, the priests have to carry the Ark of the Covenant into the floodwaters. Talk about faith. Like that's God in the box and they're going into the floodwaters. I know better than to drive my truck into the floodwaters. I've seen the videos. You float away. Then the, you know, the paramedics have to come. Not a good idea, right? And they carry it in, and the water split. Look what happens. Elijah took his mantle. That's his cloak around him. He rolled it up, and he struck the waters, which parted to the right and the left, and the two of them crossed over on dry ground. <laughs> After they had crossed over, Elijah said to Elisha, tell me what I can do for you before I am taken from you. Elijah looks at him and says, you've been here this whole time. I, I just want to do something. Is there anything I can do before God takes me? Because now we're on the other side. What's on the other side? The, the promised land. There, it's this idea of we've crossed over, that it's time to go because I'm crossing over. What can I do? So Elijah answered, please make me rich beyond my wildest dreams so I can retire in Florida. Please make me the most popular world and give me an Instagram following that it just rivals no one. Please let me inherit two shares of your spirit. I recognize that the spirit of God is so in you. I want more of that. I want that. And I want it deeper than anybody. Because I want God. I want his spirit I, I, man, that's what I want. I don't need anything else. I don't care if I have to, whatever else I get, what, I just want that. I want God. I want the spirit that's in you in me. 
That's what Jesus told his disciples. The spirit that's in me is someday going to come to you, the Holy Spirit. He goes on and he says, look at this. So Elijah answered, or Elisha answered, please let me inherit. And Elijah replied, you have asked for something difficult. In other words, I don't have the power to do that, Elisha. I don't have the power to give the Spirit. That's, that's not the power we have. The Lord gives the Spirit, not me. He's the one that does it. And I don't know if he wants you to have it or not. I don't know. I don't know if he wants you to have a double share. Maybe you just get a single share. That's all you really need, one Holy Spirit. You don't need two, right? Like, so he's looking and he's saying, and look at what he says. I love this. If you see me, he gives him kind of a test. He's like, you know what? If you see me being taken from you, you will have it. If not, you won't. As they continued walking and talking, like they're literally just walking and talking. They're having a conference. They've crossed the Jordan, you know, like nonchalant. The water's parted. Oh, that was nice. And they're going through together, having a conversation through life. He gets to this point. As they continued walking, a chariot of fire with horses of fire, suddenly appeared and separated the two of them. I don't know about you, but Elijah's called down fire from heaven to kill all the Baals, right? He's, and, and to burn up the sacrifice. He's called down fire on a hundred men, and I see fire coming. I'm not thinking, oh, that's wonderful. I'm thinking, I'm toast, right? Like, I asked for something I shouldn't have asked for, and now fire's coming to get me. I'm done, right? And it goes on and says, then Elijah went up to heaven in a whirlwind, like a tornado. It's like something out of the Wizard of Oz. They stole this. Dorothy wasn't the first one to go like that. Elijah was. You missed it. You just stole the story and used it for your profit. As Elijah watched, he kept crying out, my father, my father. He's watching this happen. He's like, oh my goodness. Yes, I can see it. I I mean, literally, God could just made Elijah disappear, like, and be like, well, that was, that was nice. We had a good run. But instead, he allows him to see the process. Listen to me. Most of us don't want to see someone else's process of dying. Not because it's too hard for them, because it's too hard for us. And God says, God says there is beauty in watching the process. There is beauty in watching the death of his precious ones. Because it's valuable to the rest of us. So that we can see what life really is about and understand the glory of God. And Elisha is celebrating. He's like, yes, I get to be a part of this. I get to see this. I'm not running away from it. I'm staying right here. Then it says, then he never saw Elijah again. He took hold of his own clothes, Elijah's clothes, or his, his clothes, and tore them into pieces. You know what's beautiful about this story is that God gives us another story. Jesus says in Matthew 16, 27, he tells his disciples, the Son of Man is going to come with his angels in the glory of his Father, and then he will reward each according to what he has done. I assure you, there are some standing here who will not taste death until they see the Son of Man in his glory, in his kingdom. Fast forward to the next chapter, and they're thinking like, 
Elijah, right? Like God's going to come back. He's going to make the northern kingdom and the southern kingdom be united. His chariots of fire are coming. He's going to make it all good again. Like all that kind of stuff. And it's like, nope, I'm just getting Elijah. You guys are still stuck, right? I'm just taking him out. You guys still got to deal with this. Jesus does the same thing. He promises them. And then it says, after six days, Jesus took Peter and James and his brother John and led them up on a high mountain by themselves. He was transformed in front of them or transfigured and his face shone like the sun. Even his clothes became white as light and suddenly Moses and Elijah appeared to them talking with them. The Elijah that went up on the chariot, he's right there. Moses, he got buried. None of us know where his body is. Like God buried him. He's right there. Because this is what was prophesied. God, look, Jesus is like, I'm going to show you. But not the way you think. I'm not going to show you as in, before you die, I'm going to come back and overthrow the Romans and make everything right. I'm going to show you now. And then he spends another 11 chapters of Matthew showing them how to live. <laughs> Goes on. In Acts, he says, so when they had come together, they asked him, Lord, are you restoring the kingdom to Israel at this time? This is after Jesus has been crucified and resurrected. He is passing through walls and doing all kinds of crazy stuff. And they, they're like, oh my goodness, this is it. He's going to come back. He's going to bring his fire. He's going to reunify the kingdom. Everything's going to be good. It is not for you to know the times or the periods the Father has set by his own authority. You guys are have the wrong thinking. You're always trying to figure out how to manipulate everything and make it work and make everything work out and stop. Stop it. Quit trying to build your own kingdom. That's what Jeroboam did. That's what Rehoboam did. That's what Solomon, they all are trying to build their own kingdom and calling it mine. Stop. He looks and he says, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit's come on you, Elisha. <laughs> and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. After he had said this, he was taken up as they were watching and a cloud took him out of their sight. You can't tell me that these Israelites were like, Elijah, that's how the, what, we've seen this before. And then it says, while he was going, they were gazing into heaven. I love this. He tells them, you have to go live. You have to live your life. You got to go out. And they're just like, no, like, go. Like, you, you have stuff to do. No, this is great. We're just going to watch the clouds for a while. That one looks like a puppy dog. That looks like a turtle. Like, he looks at him and he says, they said, men of Galilee, why do you stand looking up into heaven? You know what death means. You, this is how it's going to go. You've been told. You don't need to worry. Go, man. You're guaranteed. He said he's going to come back and get you and take you to be with him. There's, don't be afraid. Like, go. Make him known. And then he says, he will come the same way that you've seen him going into heaven. He's going to come the same way, but that doesn't mean sit around and stare at the clouds all day. Just go. And someday, he'll come and get you. Goes on, it says, Elijah picked, Elisha picked up the mantle that had fallen off Elijah and went back and stood on the bank of the Jordan. Then he took the mantle Elijah had dropped and struck the waters. When the Lord, where is the Lord God of Elijah, he asked. He struck the waters himself and they parted to the right and the left and Elisha crossed over. When the sons of the prophets from Jericho who were facing him saw, 
him, they said, the spirit of Elijah rests on Elisha. That is the exact same thing that people should say about those of us who follow Jesus. And not because we can part waters, but because we do the same things that Jesus did. Like, I don't know, love people. (laughs) Tell the truth to people. Know the word. Worship Go to temple regularly. He did all the things he was supposed to do. He's like the same thing. Then it says, look at this. And they look and they, the spirit of Elijah, they came to meet him and bowed down to the ground in front of him. This is how you respond to God. Then the sons of the prophets said to Elijah, since there are 50 strong men here with your servants, please let them go and search for your master. Maybe the spirit of the Lord has carried him away and put him on one of the mountains or into the valleys. He answered, don't send them. He's gone. He got on a chariot of fire and whoo, I saw it. It's over. No, we can save him. We can do some more life support. We keep chest compressed. It's over. It's done. However, they urged him to the point of embarrassment. Like, we can't accept living and dying. We gotta have it our way. We gotta see with our own eyes. We've gotta experience it instead of just saying, oh, he went up on a chariot. Okay, well, there's a lot of work to do in Israel. There's a lot of people who are gonna perish because they're sinners. So thanks for letting us know. We're gonna go back to Jericho. We're gonna go share the gospel and share about who Jesus is and share about the good news that Elijah's been taken up and God's coming back for us. Like, it goes on, it says, Send them. So they sent 50 who looked for three days, but they did not find him. When they returned him to him in Jericho where he was staying, he said to them, didn't I tell you not to go? <laughs> didn't I tell you how this is going to work out? But you got to see for yourself. you got to do it yourself. Then Mesha, king of Moab, or Mesha of Moab was a sheep breeder. He used to pay the king of Israel 1,000 lambs and the wool of 1,000 rams. But when Ahab died, the king of Moab rebelled against the king of Israel. So King Joram marched out from Samaria at that time and mobilized all Israel. Then he sent a message to King Jehoshaphat of Judah. The king of Moab has rebelled against me. Will you go with me to fight against Moab? Jehoshaphat said, I will go. No, Jehoshaphat was told not to keep making partnerships with the northern kingdom. And he keeps doing this. He keeps thinking, I can make this work. I can fix this. I can do this in my lifetime. I can make it all work better. No, you can't. You do you. You live for the Lord. You you make sacrifice and let God take care of the northern kingdom. The northern kingdom is not coming to Jehoshaphat and saying, we repent of Jeroboam. We're ready to come to Jerusalem. They're saying, we're in a battle and we need some cash. We need some help. We need you to get us out of our circumstances. God's like, don't participate in that. Don't participate in it. He goes on and says, I will And then he says this famous phrase that he says all the time, I am as you are, my people as your people, my horses as your horses. And then he asks, which route should we take? Joram replied, the route of the wilderness of Edom. Jehoshaphat's like, oh yes, we all want to be unified. It's all going to be great. He just throws all of his authority out the window. Doesn't even pray, doesn't even ask God. Goes on, it says, so the king of Israel, the king of Judah, and the king of Edom set out. After they had traveled their indirect route for seven days they had no water for the army or the animals then the king of Israel said oh no the Lord has summoned three kings only to hand them over to Moab because you have the king of Edom you have the king of Israel and you have the the northern kingdom and the king of the southern kingdom coming together to go fight Moab a partnership that wasn't even supposed to ever happen and then it says but Jehoshaphat said well 
isn't there a prophet of the Lord here? He did this the other time, right? Oh, crud, I'm in trouble. I didn't pray. I made a partnership. Um, we got to seek. We got to seek a prophet. We got to seek somebody. We got to seek the Lord. I blew it again. And it goes on. It says, let's inquire of Yahweh through him. One of the servants of the king of Israel answered, Elisha, son of Shaphat, who, is, who used to pour water on Elijah's hands is here. Jehoshaphat affirmed, the Lord's words are with him. So the king of Israel and Jehoshaphat and the kingdom of Edom went to him. However, Elisha said to the king of Joram of Israel, we have nothing in common. We might be Hebrews, but we got nothing else in common. Go to the prophets of your father and your mother, Ahab and Jezebel and Jeroboam. Use all, this, all the idolatry you want. Go back to mom and dad and their idolatry. But the king of Israel replied, no, because it's the Lord who has summoned these three kings to hand them over to Moab. Who summoned the three kings? Did the Lord summon the three kings? I thought it was Jehoram who summoned the three kings. I thought he sent a letter out and said, let's get together. Now he's putting God's name on it. Elijah responded, as the Lord of hosts lives, I stand before him. If I did not have respect for King Jehoshaphat of Judah, I would not even look at you. I wouldn't take notice of you. Now bring me a musician. While the musician played, the Lord's hand came on Elisha. Then he said, this is what the Lord says, dig ditch after ditch in this wadi. They are starved. They don't have food. They don't have water. They are parched. And his idea is, you're really parched. You can't sweat. You're tired. Let's dig a bunch of holes. That sounds like a good idea. That's what the Lord told me to tell you to do, Mr. King of Israel. Really, or are you just punishing me? We're all going to die here, and you're going to put us in these holes and then bury us over. Are we digging our own graves because God's so mad at us, or is this really going to work? For the Lord says, I will not see wind, or you will not see wind or rain, but the wadi will be filled with water. A wadi is like a little channel. And you will drink, and your cattle and your animals that are with you. This is easy in the Lord's sight. He will also hand Moab over to you. Then you must attack every fortified city and every choice city. You must cut down every tree and stop up every spring of water. Man, would the environmentalists be mad. You must ruin every good piece of land with stones. About the time for the grain offering the next morning, water suddenly came from the direction of Edom and filled the land. Sometimes God asks you to do what doesn't make sense, dig a bunch of holes, like trust him, like a prophet comes and tells you, not you had it in your own mind, but like, okay, we're going to do this, and then he shows up. It's not, God, you show up, and then I'll serve. It's, God, I'm your servant. I will serve. Whether you show up with life or death, I'm yours. That's what they were doing, and that's what Elisha asked them to do. For the Lord says you will not see these things. Then it says, all Moab heard that the kings had come up to fight against them. So all who could bear arms from the youngest to the oldest were summoned and took their stand at the border. When they got up early in the morning, the sun was shining on the water and the Moabites saw the water from across from them was red like blood. The land of Edom is full of clay, red clay. So when the water washes through the red clay, it turns all the water to the color of red blood. God has a genius battle strategy. And then it says, this is blood, they exclaimed. The kings have clashed swords and killed each other. So the, to the spoil Moab 
In other words, they think, oh, Edom and the, all the kings, they fought because that's what Moab did before. Oh, they killed each other. Now we're going to win. However, when the Moabab, Moab, Moabites came to Israel's camp, the Israelites attacked them and they fled from them. So Israel went into the land and struck down the Moabites. When the king of Moab saw that the battle was too fierce for him, he took 700 swordsmen with him to try to break through to the king of Edom, but they could not do it. So he took his firstborn son, who was to become king in his place, and offered him as a burnt offering on the city wall. By the way, the Moabites' God required child sacrifice for salvation. He is so standing up against Yahweh, so standing up against the miracle he's just seen, that he is like, I'll show you my God, and takes on the city wall in front of all the Israelites and kills his son in front of them to his God. And look at what it says. Great wrath was on the Israelites, and they withdrew from him and returned to their land. Underline that verse in your Bible. What happens when great wrath comes on you? Because it will in your life, I promise. You will have moments when great wrath will come on you. And will you believe what God said, that he's handed over the Moabites, that he will win, that you can take the land that you are to march in? Or will you see and be so scared of watching a child be murdered by his father and the murderous terror and fear that you'll just back away and say, you know what, I don't think our God can take care of that. I don't think God can do that. I don't think God wants, I, I, we gotta back off. Because that's what the Israelites do. They back off. God didn't tell them to back off. God told them to go through. But they got afraid. They got scared. They were afraid of dying. They saw the wrath and the, and the war, and they back, ah. And instead of crying out to God when they saw the wrath, instead of saying, God, save us, you're in charge. Their God is false. Our, you are the real God. We're marching forward with you. Whatever the consequences, life or death, we are your servants. They backed off. Be careful in that in your life. As we wrap up, this is what Jesus said. When Jesus, we read about the transfiguration earlier. We read about the fact that Jesus was telling them that he was going to ascend and they would see him. In chapter 16 of Matthew, it takes a turn. Jesus is showing a lot of life in the first 15 chapters, okay? Tune in. He's healing people. Raising dead people. There's all this life happening. I mean, everybody believes this is the Messiah who's going to come and give us the good life. He's going to overthrow the Romans. He's going to take it all. The disciples are stoked about it. They've been given power. They've gone out and shared the gospel. They've seen the feeding of 5,000. They've seen all life, 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 life. And then in chapter 16 of Matthew, Jesus takes a turn and from this point on, in the Gospels of Matthew, Luke, Mark, and John, people start abandoning him in droves. So that when he finally goes to the cross, there is John, Mary, and Mary, and that's it. Because they can't stand this message. From then on, Jesus began to point out to his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem, the place of worship, the place where 
Everybody else worships their own way, on their own mountain, in their own temple. I have my way of worshiping God, Yahweh. You have your way of worshiping, Yahweh. No, Jerusalem's the place. Now we worship in the new Jerusalem. Our hearts are united with a heavenly kingdom. The new Jerusalem has come. I don't got to go to the old one. I got a better one. And I have direct access through the power of the Holy Spirit to that new Jerusalem that's coming one day. And he says, look, and I'm going to have to suffer many things from the elders, the chief priests, and the scribes, be killed and be raised on the third day. Then Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him. Oh, no, Lord, this will never happen to you. But he turned and told Peter, get behind me, Satan. You're just like Satan. You want to stay alive as long as you can. You want to hurt and use everything you can as long as you can because you know death's coming for you and you're going to do everything you can to keep from dying. That's the heart of Satan. He goes on, he says, you are an offense to me because you are not thinking about God's concerns, God's promises, God's plans, but man, man's. Then Jesus said to his disciples, if anyone wants to come with me, like Elisha came with Elijah. If you want to come with me, unlike how Jehoshaphat kept going back and going with the northern kingdom and getting in trouble, if you truly want to come with me, he must deny himself, take up his cross, and follow me. The denial of self is pretty simple. It's just saying, hey, self, no. We're going to do what God wants to do today, and he wants me to go to work today. <laughs> he wants me to be a productive citizen. He wants me to pray for the prosperity of the land I live in. And when it prospers, I will prosper. He, wa he wants me to do simple things. So no, self. And then he says, look at this. For whoever wants to save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life because of me will find it. What does it benefit a man if he gains the whole world? yet loses his life. Look, life and death is coming. It's coming for all of it. We're living life. Life's going to happen to you. It's happening to you right now. When you walk out of here, it's going to happen to you today. <laughs> Life's a coming. And to live, to live is Christ, right? To die is gain. Precious are you in God's sight. He gave you life. He sustained your life. He's not done with you yet. I don't know why he's not done with me yet, especially with all the times he could have been done with me. And yet God is looking. Jesus has said, look, this is the way it works. Life and death. Accept it and live confidently that you are valuable and precious to me if you know me. That you have a home and a promise and that you can walk alongside and follow one another. You can submit to God. You can come under Him and it's worth it. Because Jesus says, if you don't do that, then it's going to become a scary thing when you fall in the hands of Almighty God and stand before Him and have nothing to offer. But if you offer yourself now, you never have to offer anything else again. It's a one-time offering. Surrender to Him. And for those of us who walk with him, it's the continual reminder, like Jehoshaphat, right? Elisha says, if it weren't for Jehoshaphat, I'd let all, you, like, all the Edomites and Northern Kingdom be wiped out by Moab. But because Jehoshaphat keeps coming back to God when he does dumb things, God respects that. That may be you. I don't know. But I'm telling you this morning, God wants you to know 
how precious life is. He wants you to know how precious your life is and valuable, and he wants you to know that death is worth it, that there is a gain that's worth it. Let's pray. Father, thank you this morning for all these truths that we find in your word. Lord, I thank you for these things that tell us that life is beautiful, it's wonderful, that you give us purpose and meaning in the midst of broken nations, in the midst of nations that seem like they're getting along and then they don't, and in the midst of wars, in the midst of sickness and falling out of windows and random things happening, you offer your hope. You offer us joy and life. And Lord, you tell us that the way to fully embrace that is to not chase the life we want, but to die to ourselves so that we can live the life you ask us to live. And you tell us that it's going to be hard, that there's suffering involved, that, it's, that nobody gets out alive, and it's normally a difficult seasons that pop up over and over again, but you tell us that you will always be with us. You repeat it over and over again in Scripture, and you modeled by coming from heaven to earth to die on a cross, to pay a price we couldn't pay, and then to come back to life to show us that you can take us if we're willing to embrace your sacrifice to heaven with you. And that we can point other people to the beauty and glory and the preciousness of the life you've given and the death that's coming. We thank you. We praise you in your name. Amen.